Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to focus our efforts and attention this morning on verses 27 all the way, hopefully, to verse 44. We have lots to get through today, so hopefully you have your notepads ready. There is so much going on in this text that I think we'll only be able to do a cursory flyover of everything and pull out a few things that hopefully will edify your soul and encourage you in your faith and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27, and if you are ready, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I don't know if you noticed it, But Matthew's description of the actual physical crucifixion of Jesus Christ is actually quite restrained and simple. It is to the point. It is unadorned and undecorated by all of the gory details of this, one of the cruelest forms of torture devised by humanity in history. Look at verse 35, and that's it. When they had crucified him. That's what we get. And the other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, and John, they also speak with a similar restraint, a similar plainness, 
Rather than describing all of the horrors, all of the pounding of the nails, the slow and the painful asphyxiation that was experienced by those put to death in this manner, the torture of a scourged back scraping on rough splintered wood, all of these details are described in, great, in a great way throughout history. If you want to look them up, you can find them quite easily. John also wrote it this way, there they crucified him. Now there is no doubt in my mind that the original readers of the gospel would, for the most part, have known the grisly and gruesome details, but even so, the gospel writers did not choose to spend most of their time describing the crucifixion, but in recounting the mockery and the injustice and the numerous efforts made by various groups of people to humiliate Jesus and to shame Jesus both on his way to and as he was fastened to the cross. And all of this, from the ridicule, the contempt, the sneers of the people to the actual crucifixion and death of the only true, good, and innocent man ever to live in all of human history is the focal point. The cross is the culmination. The cross is the reality to which all sorts of types and shadows set forth in the Old Testament, like the sacrificial system. The cross is the culmination of it all. The cross is the fulfillment of oh so many of the promises and prophecies set out in the Old Testament. At the cross, for example, we see the fulfillment and the realization of the promise made by the Lord all the way back in the garden when he cursed the serpent, saying in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 describes and identifies just who this serpent is in the garden when he said this ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And in Genesis, God spoke of a day, a day when the final defeat and destruction of the serpent's power over humanity would be ended by one of Eve's descendants. And while the serpent would strike at the heel, the descendant would strike at the head. One of these is a fatal blow, one of these is not. Our Lord Jesus Christ will deliver the fatal blow, the blow to the head of the serpent. And while we live in these days and Satan is still operative in this world, because of Christ's work at the cross, all who turn to Jesus in faith are delivered, as Peter says, from the domain of darkness, Satan's domain, and ushered into. We are conducted into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And we live now in the knowledge that the final crushing of Satan is, as the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, coming soon. Romans 16, 20, he wrote, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. At the cross, we see the fulfillment of God's words spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
Listen to these words. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, these words and so many more, they all find their zenith, their apex, their crescendo in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is here at the cross that the depths of human evil, along with the heights of our Lord's steadfast, loyal, long-suffering, committed love, are both put on display for you and I to see. And so, as we look at our text this morning, there is going to be a lot of information, a lot of prophetic fulfillments, a lot of themes that Matthew will pick up again, a lot of repeats of Satan's work throughout this time. As we look through together at the mockery Jesus suffered just before enduring the crucifixion, as we look at all of the efforts made to humiliate him, as we look at the last-ditch satanic tests that Christ endured in the final hours of his earthly life, let us begin in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So the soldiers brought Jesus back into the governor's headquarters, the praetorium, the governor's, meaning Pilate's official residence whenever he visited the region of Jerusalem or Judea. That's where he would go to stay. And they gathered the whole battalion of Roman soldiers. Now, a Roman battalion is one-tenth of a Roman legion. A Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers, which would mean a battalion is 600. That's a lot of soldiers to gather in. They gathered in 600 soldiers into the Roman praetorium and they, verse 28 tells us, they they stripped Jesus of his robe and put a scarlet robe on him. In front of everyone, in front of the other soldiers, in front of everybody in this palace at this moment, they stripped Christ of his clothing. And in what they meant as a mockery, they put a scarlet robe on him. Other gospel writers will call it purple. Their definitions of colors weren't quite as clear as ours maybe are today when we have 76 color purples and 26 reds and whatever, right? It it was a dark reddish purple color. Some would call it red, some would call it purple. But they put this scarlet robe on him. And what they were hoping to do here was mockingly clothe Jesus in garments that were symbolic of royalty and authority. But they didn't stop with this scarlet robe. Verse 29 tells us that they also twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They pressed it on Christ's head. Yet another symbol of prestige, another symbol of rule used mockingly is fashioned by the soldiers as a, as a way of ridiculing Jesus. 
And thirdly, verse 29 tells us also, they put a reed in his right hand, symbolic of the scepter of a king, mockingly speaking to Jesus' claims to kingship over his subjects. So this scepter is symbolic of a king's sovereign rule over his people. And so a few things to note here. The events recorded in Matthew, they drip with irony, don't they? Because these Roman soldiers, these battalion, they are intending to make fun of Jesus, to deride Jesus. But what they don't understand or what they can't see is that Jesus is actually the king. And that one day Jesus will return. And when he does, listen to what Revelation 19 tells us. When Jesus returns in Revelation 19, 12, on his head are many diadems, many crowns. They're mockingly putting a crown on his head, not realizing that when he returns, he will have not just one, not just two, not just three, but numerous crowns on his head. And in Revelation 19, 13, when he returns, he returns with a robe dipped in blood or might we say a scarlet robe of authority and power, the royal robes of a conquering king. And in Revelation 19.15, we read this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Not weak like a reed, but a rod, an unbreakable rod of iron. The three things that they choose to mock Jesus with are the three things he will return with as he victoriously rides out and conquers all evil in the world. What they mean as mockery is actually the truth. Jesus will return with an inflexible royal scepter in hand to strike down and to rule over the nations. And the, royal, the Roman soldiers, they don't know, they can't see, but what they are saying in mockery is indeed all fact. Jesus is the king, robed, crowned, with scepter in hand. Only at this time, the king uses his authority, he uses his power in, to save a people by dying in their place. And he will return later as king of kings and lord of lords. And also, also, do you see the gospel presentation that is unwittingly displayed by these Roman soldiers as they twist together a crown of thorns? And they press that crown down on the head of the king of kings. What they are unintentionally revealing here is a truth that the Apostle Paul will make clear in Galatians. If you recall the word of the Lord to Adam after he and Eve had eaten from the tree that the Lord had commanded them not to eat from. When mankind fell, listen, the Lord said to Adam in Genesis 3, 17 and 18, he said this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And what shall it produce for you? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The curse that God had put upon the ground as a result of Adam and Eve's sinful disobedience 
included the production of thorns by that very ground. And now, as Jesus has this crown wrapped and put on his head, see in this, it's, a, it's an act that shouts loudly to the reader that Christ is taking the curse upon his own head. The king will deal with the curse. And the Apostle Paul will say it clearly in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The irony continues as these soldiers, having Jesus decked out in mock royal regalia, in verse 29, kneel before him and mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! You see that in verse 29? These Roman soldiers, when they look at Jesus, all they see is yet another supposed king of yet another conquered nation, another conquered people, a people under the thumb of the authority of Rome. And if you realize it, if you think about it, throughout, you read any history book, the kings of conquered nations were never treated well by the nations that conquered them. It's never been gentle. But little do these soldiers know that when they say, hail, as a taunt. And you can imagine, right? You can imagine the scene as all of these men take turns. They all at once, either all of them at once are laughing to themselves and saying, hail, 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 in mockery. And as they bow sarcastically to pay homage to Jesus, little do they know, little do they know, little does anyone in this world right now who doesn't believe in Jesus and who mocks him know that one day they will declare this truth with absolutely zero hint of mockery. We read it in Philippians chapter 2, right? God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen to me. Some are going to do this joyfully as those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the name of Jesus Christ alone, as those who turned to Jesus during their lifetime. They will shout it joyfully. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But others will say it in mournful tones as they endure the eternal wrath of God the Father for their rejection of the salvation that is offered to all while you live and move and breathe here on this earth. Because make no mistake, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And our prayer at Winona Gospel Church, the prayer of all the saints here this morning, all the saints who are connected with us, is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, that you would make that confession now in joy rather than after your death when it is too late for salvation. But know this, no matter when you do it, when the day comes, if you have rejected Jesus unto death, there will come a day when your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord will still be to the glory of God the Father. But these Roman soldiers, back to our immediate text, while mocking in this moment, 
they will actually find themselves in the future kneeling in terror before Jesus, the conquering, victorious king of the Jews, the one that they laughed at on this day. Those who didn't turn to Jesus in faith will find themselves saying these exact words mournfully. And it didn't end there. Because the soldiers, as we read in verse 30, they rose from their knees, right? They rose from their knees and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. In my estimation, the filthiest of insults is to be spit on. And this is the second time in just a few hours that Jesus had sustained this most offensive and disgusting act of humiliation. But Jesus knew it was all coming. He had said this much to the disciples before they entered Jerusalem a week before. In Mark chapter 10, verse 34, we read Jesus telling the disciples that the Gentiles will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, it's here, if you put the Gospels all together, like if you kind of overlap them, it's at this moment that John tells us that Pilate brought Jesus out of the mansion, out of the governor's mansion, in an effort to try and secure a release for Jesus, to secure his release. He brought Jesus out, and as Jesus stood there bloodied and swollen and scourged and bruised and mocked, and mock, mock crowns and robed, and it was truly a sight to behold. It was such a sight that Pilate assumed that this sight would have to be enough, right? To see what looks like such a pathetic man standing before the crowds, they would have to. They couldn't. They weren't that cruel that they would continue the process, right? But no, John tells us even as they looked at Jesus in this state, the religious leaders in John 19:15 cried out, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" And so Matthew continues in verse 31. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, meaning the scarlet robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. So when these Roman soldiers had their fill of laughter at Christ's expense, they stripped Jesus of his scarlet robe, they took it back, and they put his own clothes back on him, and they led this illegally tried and illegally condemned man away to be executed by crucifixion. Verse 32 begins, As they went out. Now, don't miss that little detail. That's an important detail. As they went out. As they went out of what? As they went out of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. Because the Jews would not, nor were they allowed to, condemn or execute a condemned man in the city. The Lord had made it clear throughout the Old Testament that such were to be put to death outside of the city. We read, for example, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 14, what to do with a person who blasphemes the Lord in Israel. We read, bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let the congregation stone him or execute him. And again, in the, in the case of a convicted Sabbath breaker, 
We read in Numbers chapter 15, verses 35 and 36, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones or execute him outside the camp. And even in the New Testament, we see this happen when the religious leaders maintain this practice in Acts when they bring Stephen, that first martyr in Acts chapter 7, 58, we read, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us that this exiting the city, Jesus bearing the weight of this con condemnation upon himself, this movement out of the city of Jerusalem is actually for yours and my benefit if we are saved by grace through faith in his name. As he truly does indeed take upon himself the fullness of our guilt. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order, or for this reason, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So Matthew will continue. In verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. So John tells us that Jesus carried his own cross, but Matthew indicates that at some point along the way, perhaps because Jesus was in such great physical pain after having gone through so much up to this point, or because the Roman soldiers were trying to hurry Jesus along, but Jesus being so physically pained, he was moving a little bit too slow for their liking. Whatever the, re whatever the reason, whatever the case, the soldiers compelled this man, Simon. They forced him. They conscripted him into service, and he, probably at this time without even knowing it, would carry the cross of the man, would carry the cross of the Lord who was heading out to die in his place. And it would seem that this effect had a profound effect, or this event had a profound effect on Simon. Because textual clues throughout the New Testament, such as those found in Mark, in Mark chapter 15, uh, uh, verse uh, 21, we read that Simon's sons are named. Simon's sons are called Alexander and Rufus. And then you read the letter to the Romans and you see that at the end of the book of, or the letter to the Romans, he closes out his letter by saying, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And tradition will tell us that Simon and his family turned to Jesus in faith after these events. And as Simon carried the cross to Golgotha, Luke tells us that there followed along with Jesus a great multitude of the people Luke 23, 27, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So as Jesus is moving down this road, walking the path to Golgotha, there are weeping women traveling with him the whole way. There were still many who loved Jesus in Jerusalem on this day, and they would follow him all the way to the end, weeping and wailing over what would soon come to pass. And in verse 33, we see that they led Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So Golgotha was the place outside, but near enough to Jerusalem, where the criminals, the condemned criminals, were put to death. Now you see the name, right? Golgotha, place of a skull. But you ever notice that when we sing songs of praise to the Lord, 
We sing songs like, I believe in a hill called Mount what? Calvary. How did we come to that word? Because the word is Golgotha. Well, the Greek word here for skull is cranion. Can you tell what English word we get from that word, from cranion? I got a big one. Cranium. The part of your skull that protects your brain. Golgotha was a hill that was, this was the name of the hill that was shaped like a cranion, like a human skull. So Golgotha, translated into Greek, is cranion. And then, early, 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 early on, the New Testament was translated into Latin. Because Latin started to become the language of the empire. And Latin is what we would use almost exclusively until the Reformation in the 16th century. And in Latin, the word cranion, or skull, is calvaria, from which the English word calvary is derived. So, for all of you who are interested in this sort of thing, calvary is the Latin translation of the Greek word for Golgotha, which means place of a skull. When Jesus had, and the Roman soldiers had arrived at Golgotha, here, verse 34, look, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. Now there's two competing ideas as to what's happening here. As the soldiers offered Jesus the wine, in either case, when Jesus tasted it, when the wine was either forced or pressed to his lips, or whether he touched the liquid with his tongue, he refused it. It could be that this wine was mingled with some sort of narcotic that was designed to dull the senses and to ease the pain. If this was the case, Christ would not drink it because he will not have his senses dulled because our perfect substitute, our Savior, has come to pave the way to salvation for all who believe and he must do so by consciously enduring the wrath of God in our place. It could also be that this was yet another in the long line of attempts to humiliate Jesus by the Roman soldiers. This is the king of the Jews that they had just spent the last few hours mocking, and as they offered tired, weary Jesus a drink, they purposefully mix it with a bitter herb in order to make it taste terrible so they can get one last laugh which reveals the depths, right, of these Roman soldiers. They are callous. They are cold-blooded sadists. It tasted so bad that Jesus didn't drink it. Either way, whether it's the refusal of a sedative or another form of mockery, Jesus, our Savior, refused it. And then he was nailed to a cross, as we read next. When they had crucified him. This sentence is the sentence that has changed the world. And we'll be exploring more of the details and the importance of what occurred here and over the, next, over the coming days, over the next few Sundays. But for now, know this. Christ crucified, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, is here now on the cross to offer once. He's being offered once to bear the sins of many. And consider for a second what Matthew, considering what Matthew will focus on next, it's important for us to take a step back and remember his words, Jesus' words as recorded by John. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we read this. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And listen, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up again. Meaning this is something that Jesus is doing voluntarily. And as we look at the response and the mockery of the crowds to Jesus as he is fastened to the cross, knowing that he does all of this voluntarily, knowing that he does all of this of his own will and accord, and that he possessed the power to halt it all at any moment, what can we do other than praise him and thank him and honor him? and exalt him for the meekness that he exhibited in the face of all these repeated efforts to shame him and to embarrass him from the very mouths of the people that he had come to save. Matthew, in these next verses, will now focus on numerous fulfilled prophecies and hone in on the rejection that Jesus faced from his own people. And as, you work, as we work through these, always remember and keep it in the back of your mind that Jesus did this voluntarily to save you. As John wrote, Jesus, in John 1.11, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is what we see written large in these next few verses. You'll see prophetic fulfillment number one comes as Jesus is lifted up in crucifixion. Verse 35, we read that they, meaning the soldiers, divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now we read Psalm 22 at the beginning of the service because that psalm forms the backdrop for so many of the prophetic fulfillments that Jesus fulfilled as he went on his way to the cross or as he was being crucified. These are events initially that were a part of the life of King David, but that they prefigure or foreshadow that which the great king, David's Lord, Jesus Christ, would experience in more complete and full sense. If you remember in Psalm 22, verse 16, we wrote, Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John will actually specify that this text, Psalm 22, verse 18, is specifically fulfilled in this moment when the Roman soldiers cast lots for the garments of Jesus that they divided his garments among them, indicates that once again they had stripped Jesus of his clothing before they hung him on the cross. Yet another attempt to humiliate him as he is fastened there naked and exposed to all who passed by. And in Luke we read that it is at this moment, as Jesus is on the cross and as he watches these Roman soldiers mocking him and taking his garments off and casting lots for them. It is at this moment when our glorious and our compassionate Lord and King and Savior prays, to these, word, prays these words about these very soldiers. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. Luke 23, 34. And after the Roman soldiers divided his clothes... Matthew tells us in verse 36 that they went, sat down, and kept watch over him there. 
meaning they sat in full view of Christ on the cross. See, had they engaged in some sort of mockery and then left, it could be, and it did sometimes actually happen, that people would come and take down their loved ones from the cross in order to save them. But not Jesus, because these soldiers kept watch over him in order to ensure that no one could come to his rescue. They kept guard. And interestingly, as these men sit and they watch all of the events that are about to unfold, it is these same men who, when Christ breathes his last, it is these same men in chapter 27, verse 54, who will be filled with so much awe that they will say, truly, this was the Son of God. But for now, these soldiers at Pilate's order put the charge above Jesus' head, which read this in verse 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now for the Romans, this is an effort to remind Israel of their situation. All the Jews that are passing by, all the people that are in Israel at this time for the feast, they can all see as they pass by, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's the way Rome used to remind Israel of their situation. It's a refresher of the fact to the Jews that we, Rome, rule over you. And we will kill your kings because you are our subjects. That's what Rome thinks. But listen, for Matthew, this one phrase is the theme and point of this gospel summed up in one sentence. This is Matthew's entire goal in writing this gospel, to help you see that this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's his entire goal in writing this gospel record, to prove to you, the reader, that this Jesus is, like I just said, the King of the Jews. This man is the Son of God. And all of the torments that he has experienced and all of these things that he has gone through leading up to and now as he is fastened to this cross, they don't disqualify him as the king of the Jews, but they actually reveal him to be king of the Jews. He is the one that Isaiah, the Lord spoke to about through the prophet Isaiah. When Matthew records this, this is the crowning moment when you are supposed to say, yes, this is him. This is the king. This is Jesus, and he is the king of the Jews. And Matthew will continue. He says, then there are two robbers, verse 38, there were two robbers crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And if you think about the phrasing here, this harkens us back to the moment, if you remember it, when the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked Jesus to make a promise. Do you remember that back in chapter 20? The mom, mother of James and John asked that these two sons of mine, promise me that these two sons of mine, chapter 20, verse 21, are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered in verse 22, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. Jesus knew in this moment that in this moment to find themselves one at his right hand and one at his left. Jesus knew what that would mean for these two men. It would mean that they would find themselves here, drinking the cup, crucified with him, one on his right 
and one on his left. They had no idea what they were asking for. And had Jesus granted their request, they would be hanging beside him right now. Because before glory comes the cross. And these men would indeed drink the cup of Christ, but it would only be after they fulfilled the apostolic task that had been set out for them, the commission to preach the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as we read in Acts chapter 1.8. And also, in Christ's being crucified between two criminals, yet another prophetic word is fulfilled that we read in Isaiah 53.12, which declares this, that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So you remember, right? He is numbered between these two criminals and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as we come to these final verses of our text this morning, you're going to be introduced to three groups of people. And they're all, in essence, saying the very same thing to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, save yourself! That's the message in a nutshell. Here at the concluding moments of Jesus' life, as he moves ever closer to breathing his last breath, once again, Satan in these three groups will confront Jesus with the very same temptations that he had brought against Jesus at the beginning when he was in the wilderness, before Christ's public ministry. And why does he do that? Because Satan's goal is to damn humanity. And while the religious leaders had earlier on accused Jesus of being in league with Satan, if you listen to their words now, it is they who speak the devilish words of testing to Jesus while he is on the cross. If you remember, at the beginning, in the wilderness, it was hunger. After 40 days, Jesus hadn't eaten, and so Satan came and told Jesus to turn these stones into bread. In other words, Jesus, why would you suffer? Is this what your father would really want for you? To go through hunger and through lack and through trial and through difficulty? I thought your father loved you. Would he really stand by while you starve? Jesus, take matters into your own hands. It's obvious that either God has forgotten about you or he doesn't care for you because no good father would do this to their son. So forget about faith and the trust and dependence and being still and knowing that he is God, forget all of that. Do what you need to do to solve your problem. It's the same temptation that the enemy brings to us day in and day out. You don't have enough money. Lie. Steal. Cheat. Get it? I mean, if your father really loved you, would he really want you to sit there and be poor? There's an entire theology about this satanic lie. You can't trust God to provide for you, so cut corners, cheat, lie, steal, do what you need to do. That's satanic temptation. Your spouse isn't what you hoped for, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Is this really what God would want for you, to live with such a person? Do what you need to do. Don't hold on to trusting and depending on God. Do what you need to do. Would God really want you to be unhappy in this relationship? Another satanic lie. It's the same test 
leveled against us over and over and over. It's the same test that he leveled against Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And every time, it's the same. And what we need to recognize and what we need to remember is that the will of the Father is always the best. And get it out of your mind, right? Get it out of your mind that trusting in the will of God always means deliverance from and avoidance of worldly suffering. It's simply not true. But understand that in the suffering and in the trial and in the difficulty, because remember, where is Christ right now? He's on a cross in our text. And as these people continually come to him and say, come down, come down, come down, he doesn't even answer them. He entrusts himself to his father, knowing that his father's plan is better and greater and more glorious than anything these people can say to him. It's the same for us. And now, as Jesus is in the throes of crucifixion, nails in his hand, nails in his feet, under tremendous physical stress and pain, after being rejected by the holy city of Jerusalem, the very city he longed to gather to himself like a hen gathers chicks under her wing, it is now that the enemy strikes again. Through these three groups, again, he levels the three temptations similar to those he faced in the wilderness. You see, the sonship of Jesus is questioned once again. If you are the Son of God... He's pressed to prove it by saving himself from pain and discomfort. As Jesus is on the cross, save yourself. You see, the devil is relentless, right? He's opportunistic in his timing and in his temptation. But again, as you see here, Jesus does not listen. He will not listen. The lies of Satan take up no shelf space in his mind because they're not worth it. He will do what he's always done, and he will model for us the very way we ought to live our lives, trust in the will of the Father, even if it's in this most ghastly, inhumane, and excruciatingly painful torture at the hands that, of the people that he has come to save. And so you see the first group in verse 39 and 40 that speaks the satanic words. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would save yourself, or you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. See, those entering and exiting the city were the ones who were deriding Jesus as they traveled along the road and they saw him being crucified. They were slandering him. They were attacking him. They were maligning him, yelling insults at him. They were blaspheming him, all the while wagging their heads and shaking their faces in disgust. Again, the words of David find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Like we read in Psalm 22, 7, all who see me mock me, and they wag their heads. And look what the passers-by tell Jesus or test Jesus to do. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. It is at this moment. It is moments like these that really clue us in or ought to clue us into this fact. Humanity has no idea what is good for us. We have zero idea because these people, without knowing it, were actively advocating for the damnation of both their own souls and yours. It is only because Jesus is meek and powerful, and yet it's a power under control, 
It's only because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to secure and, and win salvation for the many, that he remained on that cross so that we could be saved and delivered from the penalty of sin by believing in his name. And listen, the passers-by, right, they sound like Satan. If you are the Son of God. And the very next could be, turn these stones into bread. Or, come down from the cross. See, Satan was, at this moment, feverishly laboring to keep Jesus from following through on the cross. There are those who think Satan wanted this and that he was jumping up and down after Jesus had died on the cross, but that's just, that does not make sense of the text. Satan knew that the death and the resurrection of Christ would be his undoing. Jesus had made it clear throughout his ministry, repeating it over and over and over again to the disciples. The Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem where he will be rejected and put to death and he will be raised up on the third day. Satan wanted Jesus to be an earthly savior, a national political savior. And so he kept trying to push Jesus in that direction. Come down from the cross. Everyone will believe in you then. He did not want Jesus to be a cosmic savior. And so these crowds, they've rejected the confession of Jesus as to his identity, and they believe that it's because Jesus is powerless that he remains nailed to the cross. But the opposite is true, right? It's the perfect meekness of Jesus, his power under control. It is his perfect mercy and compassion and love for sinners, even those who are at this very moment hurling those insults at him that keeps him on the cross. These are wicked sinners. The great Puritan pastor John Bunyan calls these Jerusalem sinners. And it is almost unbelievably his love for them that keeps him on the cross. It is his love for you. It is his love for me. It is his love for us that kept him there. It's for this reason that he remained there, enduring the scorn and enduring the agony. And as these passers-by are wagging their heads, then a second group hits the scene. As you read in verses 40 to 43, we see it's the chief priests with the scribes and the elders. They now enter in and engage in mockery. See, these men had become active agents for the enemy a long time ago, even though they might not have known it. But here they prove it once again as they mock Jesus as he's on the cross to the crowds and people that see what's happening. Now see the depths of mankind's depravity here that they could look on a man being tortured, a fellow Jewish countryman, a man they knew to be innocent, a man they knew was sent to them from God. Remember, right? Remember what Nicodemus told Jesus very early on in his ministry when he visited Jesus by night. In John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus and he said these words, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's unreal, isn't it? Who is the we that Nicodemus is speaking about? It's his religious, it's his group of Pharisees of whom he was an important member. He in, confesses to Jesus that they knew that Jesus had come from God and yet here by their lies and their hypocrisy and their jealousy and their hatred and their self-centeredness and their pride, they secured the crucifixion of a man that they knew had been sent to them by God. And now they start mocking him and humiliating him on top of all of that. But notice, they don't actually speak to Jesus. They speak to the crowds. 
And they speak to the people about Jesus, which is another form of mockery. They don't even deem it worth their time to look at Jesus or to address him directly. And what is it they say? He saved others. He can't save himself. See, they couldn't deny or dispute the miraculous works of Jesus. Even they know his works in Israel. And it's probably the, a, a fact that a lot of the people who are there mocking him were very, the very people that he had healed at some point in his ministry. But they say he cannot save himself. Doesn't he have the power to save himself? He had all of this power to heal everybody else. But doesn't his father have the power to save him? If, as they continue in verse 42, he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Second time, right? Come down. The second temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was Satan bringing Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Come down. In other words, let all the people of Israel see your identity. Let everybody see your connection to the father. Let everybody see that you are his son. Because as you know, should you jump, said the enemy, the skies will tear open, the angels will, in full view of all of Israel, bear you up so that you don't even hurt so much as a finger. And then all of Israel will believe in you and follow you as their king. And as we know, at this moment, Jesus could have indeed called 12 legions of angels to crack open the skies to, and rescue him. And what a spectacle that would have been. What a sight that would have been. All Israel will believe in you if you just come down from the cross. That is exactly what the religious leaders said, right? Come down from the cross and we will believe. But thankfully, Jesus refused this temptation because he came this first time to pioneer and to blaze the trail for salvation to all who believe. And now once again, come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Show us some sort of unmistakable miracle and we will believe is yet another attempt to have Jesus, in essence, jump from the pinnacle of the temple and become a different sort of king, one that doesn't actually save anyone. And the scribes continue their mockery, quoting Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8. Wow, God must really love this fellow, they're saying. Look at all the trouble and trial he's going through. What they really mean is God's not interested in this man at all. Look, God is letting this man suffer. And if God is letting this man suffer, it means he has no delight on this man. It's easy to prove. He's hanging on the cross. And what does our text tell us about men who hang on the cross? That they're cursed by God. Surely God wouldn't permit one of his servants, much less his very own son, which this man claims to be, to be nailed to a Gentile cross, right? And to be executed, right? And so what do you think Jesus does in this moment? You can't, it doesn't tell us in the text, but I would assume that as Jesus is listening to all of these things and he is remaining on the cross, it is in this moment that he must remember the truth of his, that his father declared to him amidst all these lies. You remember the truth spoken to him by his father at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's the same for you and I as we go through these difficult times, right? Surely that God couldn't love me for this and God couldn't love me for that. Listen to what Psalm 149.4 tells us about God in reference to his people, even if you're as big of a mess up as I am. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. One, Psalm 149.4, the Lord takes pleasure 
and his people. The Lord is pleased with his son. And the third group also reiterated, it says the third group, the robbers on the sides, reviled him in the same way, meaning they said the same thing. At least for a time, both of them were taunting Jesus along with the passers-by and the priests. But as Luke records, there would come a moment when one of them changed and one of them would believe then and there in the Lord Jesus Christ. But at this moment, they were joining in with the chorus of temptations. And again, notice, Jesus never defended himself once. He loves the lost too much. Those he's come to save, he loves them too much. He trusts his Father in heaven far too much to respond to the mockery of the crowds. The words of the Apostle Peter truly are illuminating as they describe these events. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. To this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed." Jesus truly is both our Savior in that he remained on this cross even as the enemy was repeatedly tempting him in a last-ditch effort to come down. And for you and I, Satan's temptations will very much be the same because he continually recycles the same thing, these same temptations in different ways because for all of us, they work so well. For us to learn again from Christ here, look at how Jesus understood that the cross was his good intention for his son. The cross was what the father had in store for the son for the purpose of delivering a multitude as he bore the penalty for their sins there. He will not be delivered by the will of the father. He will not call out for deliverance because the Son loves and trusts the Father's design. The 12 legions of angels who are standing at the doorway to heaven, just waiting to be called upon by the Son and dispatched by the Father, will not get the call. Why? So that you could be saved. So that I could be saved. So as we meditate... Remember and consider the wonders of Christ's work on the cross. Everything he endured, his perfect meekness, the authority that it took to remain there in the face of such mockery, ridicule, and scorn. And let us ascribe to him all praise, all glory, and all honor to our Lord Jesus Christ, who truly is, as Matthew tells us, the King of the Jews. But even more, he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and he, most excellently, laid down his life to save sinners like us. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for recording all of these glorious truths in Matthew's gospel. 
We thank you for giving us so many lessons to learn from Jesus during these days and these hours. I pray that you would help us to first and foremost ascribe all glory, honor, and praise to Jesus for his work on the cross and that we could sit confident in the truth of your word that if you wouldn't withhold your own son from us, then how would you not give, him, give, with him all, uh, give to us with him all things? Father, I pray another lesson we would learn from the sacrifice of Christ is the necessity of depending on the will of the Father. And if we're going through difficult times, troubled times, trials, and we are just wanting to take shortcuts and sinful, and we start sinning to try and get out, I pray that you would keep us from turning stones into bread. I pray that you would keep us from coming down and taking uh, and hearing the words of Satan's temptations but I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to be like Jesus who entrusted himself into the hands of his Father. May you be exalted, may you be glorified this week as we consider your cross every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.